You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of a movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 11 of Fantasy Film Ball. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports, and sports into something that we don't talk about here. And we're coming up so, so quickly to this year's Fantasy Film Ball draft. Actually, in our Discord right now, we've already got a few games running, and our draft will be taking place this week. You'll be able to catch it. We're going to be uploading it to the channel here next week, and we're so excited for you guys to see uh, our game come together, because uh, this is like a highlight of the year for me, and I'm I'm really pumped. Um, yeah, Dill, how are you feeling going into this week? We've got our draft coming up. Uh, how do you feel? I'm feeling very lucky because our draft is one day, but the day before the draft is my birthday, so I'm hoping a little bit of my birthday luck can carry over to the draft, and I can snag some movies and later around some of my sleepers for the year, but I know our league is going to be very competitive, so this is probably going to be the hardest film ball league I've been a part of in my three years. Oh, for sure. It's going to be really... Co- I mean, happy early birthday, by the way. Uh, and in terms of our league being competitive, uh, some big news. We've got The Film Drunk is going to be playing in our league. Uh, we also have Brother Bro, uh, who's going to be in our league as well. Uh, and we're so excited to be playing this game against them. And also a little bit nervous, because these are two... Uh, they know their stuff. You know, this is not the... The little leagues, this is like, this is going to be pretty intense, uh, but I'm really excited. You know, I feel like it's uh, it's nerve-wracking. I've got first pick, which means that I get to pick first, and then my next pick is 11 picks later at 12, uh, which means that I'm going to watch most of the movies that I really want, like, disappear <laughs> very fast. Uh, at least yeah. on the positive side, I mean... You don't have to sell yourself short. You're a former winner. Honored's a f- former winner. And Tandem's come in second, I think, both of those years. So we have a very competitive group all around. I feel like the loser of the bunch. I've, I've come in second once, but other than that, last year I, I had a pretty uh, lackluster team, to say the least. Well, you know, we're, I mean, you take it every year at a time. And uh, this year, this is your redemption round this year. Now, as always, we do like to start our show with a question, and I was inspired last night uh, because last night I started to redo my predictions, and I got to supporting actress, and I started to think to myself, I'm like, okay, who really is the lead of, uh, not the lead, who is the player from Women Talking? Because obviously they're all going to be supporting. Who is it? Who's the player? So I got the book. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna read a little bit of the book. I couldn't put it down. I read literally half of the book last night. Uh, I, like, stayed up till 4 a.m. because I was just so engaged in the book. Um, and it got me thinking about movie books. So the question of the week this week is, what is your favorite movie book? Uh, so Dill, take us away. What's a good movie book? So I went with two picks here. One is a book I read before seeing the movie, and one is a book I read after watching the movie. So the one I read before seeing the movie was Monster by Walter Dean Myers. I read this in middle school, and 
this was one of the very first books I remember reading and like loving. Uh, it's a different type of book because the book's written as a screenplay. Um, the movie came out last year, I think, on Netflix, and it was not that good. It starred Kelvin Harrison Jr., and it was one of those movies that was supposed to come out in like 2018, and then it just got shelved and then sold to Netflix. And I could see why. As like a huge fan of the book, it really did not deliver much of anything. It had a really good cast, so like it had Kelvin Harrison, it had uh, John David Washington, ASAP Rocky. Um, a lot of people were in it, and especially there's a lot of actors like John David Washington who were in it before they got big because this was filmed in like 2017, 2018. So it was really interesting to see like how far they've come outside of this. But like the movie itself wasn't that good, but the book I adore. And the other one was Silence. Um, and that was a Martin Scorsese movie. Jeez, Martin Scorsese movie. And um, the book's just as good as the movie, arguably better. They're both two of my favorites that I've ever either watched or read. Those are really good choices. I when I saw Monster, when when you said Monster, I was thinking of the Charlize Theron movie. I was like, oh, interesting choice. But no, that that's an even more interesting choice. Uh, that's actually a fun story about that movie. Is Tiff had that as one of their opening night films in like 2018 when it came out, and the reason it was like an opening night film is because they were gonna have Drake come and do a concert um, in the screening, and so the tickets were like. You could buy these tickets for, like, 500 bucks to see this Kelvin Harrison Jr. movie because Drake was going to do, like, a few songs before the screening. He canceled right before. Uh, so this, the movie went on, and people paid, like, 500 bucks for their tickets for this movie, and then Drake just was a no-show. Um, so that was... That's <laughs> the fun story about that movie. I haven't seen that, though, and I haven't read the book, so I'll have to, have to keep that in mind. Uh, so for me... When I think of, like, a great movie book, I think of a book that, um, you know, you watch the movie and you get more out of the book. And, you know, you uh, read the book and you get more out of the movie. Because uh, I always see people being like, oh, the book was better. And, you know, it's they're different things. They're different experiences, different mediums. But for me, the two that I've picked here are Cloud Atlas, which is a book that I read before the movie because I was so excited for the movie. I read it uh, and just loved it. And then The Princess Bride, which is a book that I read after the movie. And I found that my experience and enjoyment of both has really uh, risen because of that. And um, yeah, The Princess Bride is super interesting because in the book, um, the whole gimmick, it's written by the same person who wrote the screenplay for the movie. Um, and the whole gimmick of the book is that William Goldman, the actual author, is constantly acting as though he's writing this abridged version of someone else's book, whose name is, like, Morgan Stern or something. So funny. And the whole running gag is that he's like, I'm chopping out, like, 50 pages here because they just talked about packing luggage. Um, it's so good. And it's one of those books where the book makes the movie better and the movie makes the book better. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's what you're aiming for when you have a movie book. So, Women Talking, though, fantastic book. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about Women Talking more later. But right now, we've got In the News. We're going to do a quick roundup of some of the trailers of this week. And the first one, we got our villain of the season, the greatest beer run ever. What do you think, Dill? I think it's time for us to go on a beer run over to Vietnam because I was sold by this trailer I'm usually down for the villains of every season, and it looks like 2022 is not going to be any different. I am. You liked cats. <laughs> I, I love. I didn't like cats. I love cats. Yeah. And, um, 
Last year, I was down with the villain of the season, and this year, it looks like I am again. And, I mean, there's multiple villains this year. I don't know if I'll be with all of them, <clears throat> Amsterdam, but Grace Beer whenever. Unless this movie's really bad, which, I mean, Cats is really bad, but I still like it a lot. So, who knows? I could be with this movie all the way through. Now, for Film Ball, we'll get to that a little bit for stuff of this movie, but overall, I'm really excited for it. Nice. I mean... I think it's going to be fun. I'm definitely seeing it at TIFF. I'm prepared to laugh. I'm prepared to, like, feel. Um, but that said, something's bothering me about this movie, and it's just, it's it's the approach. And it's that the entire trailer feels like the whole vibe I'm getting is, uh, obviously, Zac Efron's characters going around being, like, protesters are un-American, and they hate the troops. And it seems clear to me that his journey as a character through this movie is going from someone who believes that people who are protesting against Vietnam hate the troops and are protesting against the troops to understanding that this is an unjust war and that the troops who are there don't fully understand why they're there and shouldn't be there and it's a waste of life. Um, I understand that Peter Farrelly is going to be trying to have like that character arc happen where he goes from thinking that protesters are hippie scum to like getting it and understanding that this war sucks but i don't know how well he's gonna pull that off and i feel like it could end up being very very um simple um and reductive so i was not getting good vibes from the trailer i was not no i agree i think it will be very rough to say the least how he goes because I do get those same vibes. I'm more feeling just a little bit different as in he is using this as a way to not mock, but like kind of like point a finger and be like, war is dumb. I'm going to show you yeah. how by using someone who's very into war sort of thing. Well, that could be a complete mystery. That's at least how I kind of got the feeling from because Zac Efron's character seems, to put it lightly, kind of dumb. And Oh, so dumb. So I think, I, I feel like a lot of it is going to be dumb person and dumb situation and then kind of like how don't look up was it was a lot of dumb, like dumb people doing dumb stuff and you're supposed to point and go ha ha and while i like don't look up a lot i don't know if i'll love grace beer whenever like i did with don't look up but i get the same vibe sort of so i'm a little bit more higher up than i think other people might be yeah i think uh it, it's giving me very big green book vibes and now i'm seeing how like green book and this movie fit into peter farrelly's filmography because he does really work well with stupid characters learning something uh that's what dumb and dumber is like that's the whole thing of dumb and dumber uh, and most of his movies is like stupid person learns something um and in green book the thing that i did feel was so reductive in that movie and what makes it not really my favorite uh is that the whole arc of that movie places the importance in that situation on the ignorant racist guy, right? Viggo Mortensen's character is ignorant, racist, kind of full of hate. Um, and then we're supposed to applaud that at the end of the movie, this guy who really hasn't had a whole lot of growth is now like, well, I don't think that black people are poisonous anymore and I won't throw out their glasses if they touch it. Like that's, that's his arc through the movie is like, he goes from ignorant to slightly less ignorant and I f I'm getting the same vibes from this. Um, and that's what's concerning me about this movie, is it feels like it's going to be uh, very one-dimensional, um, just in the same way that Vigo's 
uh, transformation from racist to like still racist, but like kind of accepting. I think that this is going to be like, it's going to go from protesters are un-American to like, well, I don't like what they're doing, but maybe they have something right. So I don't know. I, bad vibes for me. Well, a trailer that we did not get bad vibes from is Living, which is coming out on Christmas, and I know that you have a lot to talk about with this one, so I'll hand it right back over to you. Well, I, I mean, first, I, I've seen the movie, right? I uh, love Living. It's a film that I saw at Sundance. Uh, it was, I think, my absolute favorite one from the... Fa- no, it wasn't. It was top three favorite ones of the festival for me, uh, and I loved it. So... I've seen the movie. I thought the trailer was a very good representation of it. But what do you think about the trailer? Because you have not seen the movie. I have not, and I didn't get a lot from the plot or anything like that from the trailer. The biggest thing I took away was the release date of it coming out on Christmas because a Mm -hmm. lot of people are talking about Sony Pictures Classic with The Sun, but The Sun comes out a little bit earlier, and normally that Christmas-type release date means the studio is very confident in their movie. Clearly, sometimes it doesn't work like that, I mean, we already talked about Cats once, Universal put that on Christmas, it didn't work. But, Sony Pictures Classics usually knows what they're doing. And even last year, when they were dealt a bad hand with Parallel Mothers, they still made it work and got Penelope Cruz an actress. Here's the thing. Okay, so I'm going to break this down a little bit. So, Living, it is a remake of an Akira Kurosawa movie, Ikiru, which came out in 1952. One of the... <coughs> sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, one of the best movies ever made. Ikiru, Fantastic. Now, that is uh, the story of a bureaucrat who has been wasting his whole life behind a desk, who, when he's diagnosed with cancer, he decides that he's actually going to live for once, and he's going to make a difference in his world. Um, This is a very faithful adaptation of it. There's a lot of scenes that are one for one the exact same, but what this adaptation brings is, uh, for one thing, a great performance from Bill Nighy. Uh, It also brings fantastic costume and production design, a great score, and beautiful cinematography. This is a absolutely delightful-looking film, and I'm sure you got that vibe from the trailer, right? 100%. The cinematography was going to be the second thing I talked about. Yeah, fantastic. Now, this is the interesting thing about this movie. This is the only movie outside of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, There are two movies that are hitting Venice... Telluride, and Tiff. And it's all the beauty in the bloodshed, and it's living. Um, and that's fascinating to me, because normally the films that hit all those fests are stuff like Roma, Marriage Story, Nomadland, The Power of the Dog, and this year it's Living that's doing it. Um, now, Living is missing the New York Film Festival, but still, hitting those big three fall fests is a big, big deal for a movie like this. Uh, now, I did a bit of a deep dive into Sony Pictures Classics, earlier this week, and I think that they're doing a little uh, interesting campaign strategy because they have had two examples of how they get movies in. Uh, And to be fair, I think that this is just an acting play, maybe for score as well, maybe like production, costume design. Um, I don't think this is going to be a picture movie. But uh, what they're aiming for here, they've got The Sun, and they're releasing that in late October, early November, which mirrors their release strategy with The Wife, with Glenn Close, as well as Call Me By Your Name. Now, what they're hoping for with The Sun releasing at this time is that they can get that early buzz, carry that early buzz 
get all the early nominations, such as the Golden Globes, AFI, NBR, um, all of those, and then build that to the Oscars. Now, with Living, they're releasing that at the very last moment. Uh, they're not going to be doing many fests after um, uh, TIFF and Telluride and Venice. It's just going to be dead silence until December. Now, this is a release strategy that they tried with Parallel Mothers, which they got Penelope Cruz in and the score in for that movie, which is totally what they could do for this one, too, as well as for The Father. Um, now, Sony Pictures Classics, they often employ this strategy where they drop the film at the very last minute. They miss the early nominations, like, uh, again, AFI, NBR. Um, often they miss the Golden Globes, like they did with uh, Parallel Mothers. And then at the very last minute, they pop right in, join the conversation right as Oscar nominations voting is happening, and then bam, there they are. Um, that's what they're trying to do with this, and that's how they're trying to do both films. So The Sun is going to be their Call Me By Your Name, and they're really hoping that Living is either Parallel Mothers or that it's The Father, and I think it could be either one. I like that deep dive a lot, because originally when I first saw stuff with this movie, I always think it was going to be Jockey, where it was going to be that movie that had hype but nothing actually happened with it. But the more that you talk about it, the more that I see it's going to those big three, I am getting those Parallel Mothers vibes, especially after seeing the trailer. The score really stood out. The cinematography really stood out. It could definitely be a two or three nomination movie. While it's not a picture movie, it's an actor plus score, an actor plus cinematography or costumes or production design. And I think that strategy Sony Pictures Classic is amazing. While I feel like as someone who works on the movie, I would be a little bit upset that I'm like, I'm missing out on all these other nominations on the way up, but you're getting the most important ones. And they usually deliver when they drop those movies the last minute. Those are usually the last things you see. People are like, oh, the last thing I saw was Bill Nye in Living. I liked him more than, let's say, Austin Butler and Elvis I saw eight months ago. Uh, and that's the thing. And, and what they're really trying to do here is they're trying to peak right at the right moment. And they did that so well with The Father, where The Father uh, went from being a movie that was missing every nomination. It was getting in for Anthony Hopkins here and there. It did get a Golden Globe nomination, but like it missed so many of the early noms um, to the point where people were going, oh, can The Father even make it in? And then it peaked right at the right time because not only did um, Sony Pictures Classics not release the movie in theaters until nominations voting, but they didn't release it digitally, which is how everyone was watching movies in 2020. They didn't release it digitally to be seen by the general public until win voting was going on, which means that a lot of people started talking about it and seeing it just two weeks before the Academy Awards, which is how it ended up getting two wins and likely finishing second place for Best Picture. So Sony Pictures Classics, you cannot discount them. And I think Living, they have a really strong shot here. Bill Nighy should definitely be in your top 10, if not your top five, because uh, he is coming, believe me. He is going to be getting some nominations and I think he can make it to the Oscars. Uh, now, something that I will say is there's a lot of people on the internet who are saying that this movie's not happening, not because it doesn't have realistic chances, but because they don't want it to happen. Because this is a remake of a beloved classic film that's on the IMDb Top 250 that is a Criterion Collection classic. It's uh, listed as one of the like 100 best movies of all time on basically any list you see. So a lot of people are saying, why does this remake exist? Why is this necessary? It's not necessary, but it's still very good. It's not as good as the original, but it's still a very good film. Um, and I think that once people start seeing it, they'll soften up on it. 
Well, speaking of a film that is not hitting New York to a film that is, she said it, it got in. New York it Film got Festival. In. It got in. New Film Festival. It's Missing Venice, which is still weird, um, but we have a photo for it. And what do you think of the photo? So, you know, I... for You're talking about women talking, right? Yeah, women talking. Okay, women talking. For the photo for women talking, I think it's a photo. Um, you get a look at the cast. That's that's about all I got out of it. I know that you talked about reading the book, so I'm really interested in hearing who is that possible supporting actress candidate. Is it Judith Ivy like you've been talking about? Is it someone else like Jesse Buckley? Is Frances McDormand actually a player unlike how you thought before? So I think a lot of things go into that. Okay, so you know what? I'll just do my, my deep dive into women talking right now. Uh, so there was a screening this week. There are some reactions. Um, basically, all they say is like, hey, Frances McDormand isn't in it. She's in it for like six shots total, which is true. She plays a character called Scarface, which is hilarious. Um, but essentially, the way the book starts is that the women in this community have two days where the men are all away because they've all been taken to jail, um, but they're going to be back in the community in two days. And so the women of the community have voted um, between three options of what to do. And one option is that they do absolutely nothing. The other option is they stay in the community and they fight back against the men and kill the men. And the third option is they run away. Uh, now, Frances McDormand's character plays, um, she is one of the only people in the town who says, we do nothing. We continue life as it is, and we ignore the problem. Um, and so she is excluded from the discussion between these women, because these women are the ones who are trying to decide between, do we stay and fight and kill, or do we run away? Um, and so the things that I've learned from reading it are just characters. Who is playing who? Um, so Sheila McCarthy is playing Greta. Um, so she's on the very left of the photo that you see there. So she is all the way to the left, wearing glasses, um, and she is the matriarch of the group that wants to leave. Uh, meanwhile, Judith Ivy uh, is all the way to the right. She's the um, older woman on the right side of the photo, and she is the matriarch of the family that says that they want to stay and fight and kill. Um, now, they have daughters, um, and those are really where the supporting players are. Um, specifically, the daughters of Agatha. So Agatha is Judith Ivy's character. Um, that is the clan of women that want to stay and fight. Um, and so we have Salome, who is being played by Claire Foy. Uh, and Claire Foy, uh, this is going to be an insanely powerful role uh, because this is a woman who uh, she's the only one, she was the one who discovered what was happening to them uh, because she woke up in the middle of the night after being drugged, um, saw the men who were attacking her, uh, I don't want to say any spoilers, but she was being attacked, um, and she went after them with a scythe uh, to hurt them. Um, and so Claire Foy's character is very big, very angry, full of so much um, hate and loathing. And I think that this is a performance that could be uh, Oscar worthy. I think it's one I have put Claire Foy right into my top five, uh, knowing now what character she plays. Now, Rooney Mara plays Una, which is uh, Salome's sister. So Claire Foy and Rooney Mara are sisters, and Una is, um, is the more quiet one. Uh, she is very central in the book. She's the one who starts the meeting and brings everyone together. 
Um, but that said, the screening reactions have said that she is not uh, really exceptional. She's very quiet in the film, uh, which makes sense from the book. Now, the other character is Jesse Buckley, um, who I've heard from the screening is a huge standout. Now, I'm halfway through the book right now. Her character is very small in the book, um, but the screening reports and the intel that I have from on set saying that she's an absolute powerhouse uh, means that I still have Jesse Buckley in my top five. So the main takeaways that I have for you right now are um, Claire Foy has the meatiest role in the movie. Uh, she plays a mother who is defending her children, who desperately wants to stay and fight, and she believes that she can kill the men. Um, and Jesse Buckley is also apparently a huge standout, but she plays one of the women who wants to leave. Um, so yeah, great book though, and I'm really excited to see how this keeps coming together. Um, but that is my takeaway, and hopefully you've taken something away from this for your predictions. I know I have, because I just dropped you to 5e4, Claire Foy, one of my predictions on Gold Derby as well. They're both 101 right now, so go ahead and swap those out for everyone out there listening, because those are odds that if what Matt's saying is true are going to be, at the end of the day, probably like 5-1 to one on nomination morning. No, absolutely. And I've had Judith Ivey in for months, because Frances McDormand originally was playing the role of Agatha, um, and then she thought to herself, oh, I think that my friend Judith is better for this role. And that's why I was thinking, oh, Judith Ivey might be one of the ones being nominated for this because she is, uh, like, really, uh, you know, that's Frances McDormand who had that role for herself and then gave it away because she wanted to give her friend a chance to shine. But now knowing what I know, the two older women, the matriarchs of it, Sheila McCarthy and Judith Ivey, are both... Um, going to be very strong roles, but they're much less flashy roles than the young women, um, because the young women are the ones who are especially fighting for survival. Mm -hmm. Well, going from Women Talking to a title that sounds very similar to it, she said, that is going to New York Film Festival, and we had so long of thinking that this movie was not going to a festival, but at the end of the day, it got in, it got into the one that we both thought it was going to. So do you think this helps its chances a lot and sort of rise back up on your rankings? Because I know myself it dropped a little bit, and I know for you it did as well. It dropped when I thought that it wasn't going to festivals. Now that I know it's going to New York, obviously I still think this would be a great TIFF player. But uh, you know what? It makes sense at New York. It's a film about the New York Times. It makes sense to be there. I think that it's uh, in its right place. And yes, I have brought it back up. It's back in my top five. What about you, Dill? Uh, I know you said you're feeling a little bit more confident about it again, but are, where is it sitting for you right now? It currently is still at 11 for me. I don't want to take the sun back out after I put it in because, like we just talked about, Sony Pictures is usually pretty good at campaigning, and now that i finally accepted, like, okay, I'm putting this in, I don't want to take it out until we get some reactions out of it. We could get reactions, and this could go back to our previous episode of a Oscar winner's follow-up isn't as good as their first, and this could be the case for Florian Zeller with the son. It may not be as good as the father. It may not have that wide appeal. Or it could be even better. I'm, that's what I'm really looking forward to. But we just talked about a film that should have been going to TIFF but it's not. To some TIFF news, a directing prize winner for Empire of Light and Sam Mendes. So interesting. I could have sworn uh, beforehand I was like, okay, 100%, they're going to give the directing prize to Steven Spielberg. Because if you have an opportunity to give Steven Spielberg a goddamn prize, you're going to give him a goddamn prize. He's never been to TIFF before. and But they gave it to Sam, Man Sam Mendes. 
wild for me. Uh, maybe they thought it was Sean Mendez, and they were trying to like reward their city and be like, "Oh yeah, Sean Mendez." Like, no, I I don't know what the thinking is here, but maybe Empire of Light is a stronger directing player than I previously thought. What do you think about this, Dill? Well, you mentioned Shawn Mendes, and I think Clifford showed at TIFF last year, so they could show Lyle Lyle Crocodile this year and get some love I'm there. still waiting on Lyle Lyle Crocodile to come back. I think that they're going to surprise announce it, and it's going to win the People's Choice Award. I think that is a movie that is a movie. So It, is, um, it sure is a movie. I've seen that trailer now about 10 times, and I don't want to see that trailer again. But for Sam Mendes and Empire of Light, this is one that just keeps rising up on my list. Originally on Gold Derby, I just added it everywhere because of the 101 odds. But now I'm feeling better about having it in because like when I added it to Picture, I had to lose Elvis. When I added it to Director, I had to lose... Um, who did I lose? I don't remember who I lost, actually. But I lost someone who I really wanted in there. Oh, I lost uh, Sarah Polly for Women Talking. And... She came back in uh, when Scorsese dropped out of the race. So I right. lost the, the great odds for just good odds now. But uh, Empire Light is one that I'm more confident the further we go because, like we talked about before, search sites are usually pretty good about getting one movie in. Even last year when we thought no movies would get in, Nightmare Alley came in and saved the day for at least my film ball team. And who knows, Empire Light could be the savior for your film ball team this year. Who knows? Who knows? All right, so before we move on, because we are going to be talking a little bit about some film ball stuff, I want to talk about a movie that I saw this week, uh, and that is Triangle of Sadness. Uh, this was one that has been one of my most anticipated films of the year, and I'm so happy I got a chance to see it early. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Oscar odds here, because I've definitely been putting it in my top 10 for a while. I've been predicting it pretty high, and I want to come in and clear the air and talk about the realistic odds for Triangle of Sadness. So what is Triangle of Sadness? This is the Palme d'Or winner. It is a Swedish film from uh, from director Ruben Ostlund. Uh, it's his second Palme d'Or. He was previously Oscar nominated for Best International Feature for The Square. This is his first film in English. Um, and this is my third favorite movie of the year. It's fantastic. It is so funny. Um, I felt like this is a, a big film nerd comparison, but it felt like a mix of Jacques Tati and um, uh, Louis Buñuel. Um, and saying that will mean nothing to most people, but really the thing that I loved so much about Triangle of Sadness is there was a great, hilarious mix of uh, commentary on the absurdity of wealth and the absurdity of the bourgeoisie um, and fantastic physical humor and visual gags. It's funny. It's really uh, very witty, but it's really stupid at the same time, which I think is the perfect mix. You know, um, I've heard a lot of people saying that this could be like, don't look up um, because it is very heavy handed with its messages. Um, but I think it's much smarter than don't look up. I love don't look up, but this movie is uh, very art house. It's very witty, um, but it is very, very heavy handed. So let's talk about awards chances. Now, I had put it in my top 10 in previous weeks. You've definitely seen that in my top 10. You've definitely heard me say this could be a directing player. Um, I am going to retract that a little bit. Uh, so after seeing the movie, my big thought was I don't see a path for this to get to the Oscars. It's very, very rare that we see a movie just pop up at the Oscars without having precursor nominations. 
Uh, the closest we've gotten in recent years is Drive My Car last year, which did not get in at the Critics' Choice for Best Picture. It didn't get in the BAFTAs for Best Picture. It didn't get in uh, the Golden Globes or anywhere else. But what it did have was BAFTA directing, uh, and it did have Best Film at the trifecta of the National Society of Film Critics, the New York Film Critics Circle, and Los Angeles Film Critics Society. So, all this to say, what is the path for Triangle of Sadness to get into Best Picture? And how likely is it? And the way I see it is, uh, there's two ways this could get into Best Picture. And it's through the Golden Globes, giving it a comedy nomination, which is totally possible, but also a little unlikely because it is such an artsy film that it doesn't feel like what the Golden Globes go for. It feels like something that they would avoid so, so far. Um, so I don't think the Golden Globes is a likely path. Now, the other way to get in is BAFTA. I don't see this making the BAFTA top five. That's the only thing. Uh, I could see it maybe getting a directing nomination there, maybe a screenplay nomination, but is this a movie that's going to make BAFTA's best film lineup and then make it to the Oscars? I say no. So after seeing this movie, I am taking it out of my best picture top 10, mostly just because I don't see the path that it takes to get to the Oscars. The path is there. It could get that BAFTA nomination. It could get the Golden Globes, but I'm doubting it. So right now, I only have it in for screenplay. I still think screenplay is a good bet because I think the writer's branch often does things a little bit more wild, a little bit more out there, and there's 10 slots for screenplay instead of, you know, uh, well, there's 10 for, for picture as well. But anyways, there's, there's 10 slots in screenplay because you've got original and adapted, and I think this has a really strong shot at screenplay. Well, I know I'm really anticipating it, and it seems like some people in our Film Ball League are too because it went as high as number two in a league and went in the second and third round in some of the other leagues. So I know there's been a lot of inspired and a lot of just interesting drafts so far because that's one thing I know I talked about in previous episodes, but we're going to see firsthand now is just how different and how variants all the leagues are going to be this year just because you have a lot of different people from all over the world because this isn't just a thing over here domestically because I mean just us two I'm US you're Canada and we have people from Asia from Europe from South America we have people all over competing in this league and we've already had three leagues complete their drafts and some others already starting and we've had a lot of interesting things but one thing that stayed pretty true every time is the Fablemans has come out as the number one pick yes I think in two out of three of the leagues the Fablemans has been first pick uh, so that seems like our consensus number one, which is interesting because last week I'd said, I think Babylon should be the consensus number one. And Babylon was the one other move that did go first overall. And that was in the very first draft. So maybe he heard you was like, you know what, Babylon, let's go with that. And the other two leagues, like, we're going to be different. We're going Fablemans. I know our league will be different because you had the first overall pick, but we still have some more leagues to draft. So I wonder if Babylon will eventually overtake Fablemans for the consensus number one. Will everything ever all at once get some more fans and it also becomes a number one? Or will some random movie that uh, we may not be as high on overtake these and become the consensus of number one overall? We still have a lot of drafts to go, but so far we've had a lot of interesting things. Some movies being underrated, some being overrated. What's one to you that's been massively underrated so far? Oh man, okay. So this is going to coincide with one of my awards predictions later. Uh, but I think that the one that I'm seeing as being the most underrated at this point is I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody 
is one that I had like a, a, a little light bulb, a little uh, bit of um, a moment of inspiration this week where I was like, oh my God, I want to dance with somebody isn't just an acting play. I think that this could make best picture. Uh, and so I have a few reasons for that, uh, mostly being that uh, the only reason why I haven't been predicting this for best picture is because I have preconceived notions about Casey Lemons. Uh, because I am not a huge fan of Casey Lemons' previous work that I've seen. I thought that her directing in Harriet was uh, what brought the film down a little bit for me, because I thought Cynthia Erivo was really good. Uh, but the directing did not do it for me. But I've been talking every single week on this show about how the way that the Oscars work is that they don't always go for the filmmakers that everyone expects. They go for the ones that surprise them, that are fresh voices, that they haven't gone for in the past, that maybe they respect, but they haven't really loved in the past. And Casey Lemons fits the bill for that perfectly, where she's a filmmaker who her movies have gotten other nominations, but she has never been the one to shine. And so could I Want to Dance with Somebody be in that Best Picture Top 10 be one of those, I keep talking about first-time nominees. Totally, it totally could. Anthony McCartan's behind the screenplay. He does not miss. He did all, I mean, we've spoken so much about Anthony McCartan on this show uh, and how he just has the most insane track record with the Oscars. And I really think people are undervaluing I Want to Dance with Somebody, um, especially in a post-Oscars So White era where at the moment, um, the only best picture contender that people are actually uh, talking about that features BIPOC characters in any way, shape, or form is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, and I think that there's going to be, as the season goes on, people are going to be looking for a film that definitely um, stands out and fills sort of the, the place of a really spectacular BIPOC film, which especially because there's Till that's out there, but that is a film about trauma. I Want to Dance with Somebody is a film about joy. Uh, and it's not a traumatic film. It's a film about a singer that people know, that people love. Um, and I really think people are underrating this right now, including myself up until this week. Well, I'm sad to say that you're completely right. I Want to Dance with Somebody has been very high on my board all season long. I, I talked about last week as being a very good sleeper pick in a lot of drafts, but I think that sleeper status is gone. In the draft so far, it's gone as high as 23, but as low as 39, and that's a wide variant so far, and I feel like this is going to be, like I said last week, I think at the minimum, this is Eyes of Tammy Faye. It's an actress plus a tech, but I think its peak is what you said. It's in picture. It's in screenplay. It's got multiple techs. I think this could have as high as six nominations and winning two of them, and... This, I feel like, will be a huge player. I don't see a world where this can go any later than early fourth round, but I think this will have a wide variance of people because there will be some people who are all for this, and there will be other people who think this is nothing. And I'm someone who's been very high on it. I've had it very high in actress and in some tech categories so far. But like you said, it's rising and rising up on my list because there aren't really any negatives besides the director's previous work, which I agree has not been my favorite. But like you said... There's always time for change, and what better time for change is there than right now? And you know what this is reminding me of? King Richard. King Richard was another movie that people, I think, were underrating a little bit last year. People were saying this is a uh, an acting play, nothing else. 
mostly because people knew Ronaldo Marcus Green and his previous films uh, had not been great. Joe Bell was an underperformer. Uh, and so when people looked at this film, they went, ooh, maybe the performance, but maybe not the movie. And I think we're going to get the exact same thing uh, with I Want to Dance with Somebody. People are going to be saying that all the way, and then it's going to enter the race and sort of fill that slot of a film that is uh, featuring uh, BIPOC performers specifically about triumph and about joy and about uh, power and, and not about trauma or misery or any of that. Uh, I think that this film's going to be huge. On the other side, there's a movie I think is being very much overrated, and it's been taken around the same time as I Want to Dance with Somebody. It's gone as high as 24 and as low as 33, so almost equal numbers with I Want to Dance with Somebody, and that's another best actress contender, The Woman King. This is what I feel like is being very much overvalued because of the Viola Davis name. It's getting a very wide release and already has a trailer attached to it. But this is one that just does not scream Oscar player at all. I can see a world with maybe it's a costume, but at the same time, I think the studio has a lot of other things to focus on. And if I'm not wrong, Woman King is Sony, right? Uh, Women King is Sony, but so is I Want to Dance with Somebody. That's what I was going to say, is I Want to Dance with Somebody is also Sony, so they have two contenders, and one's coming out in the Christmas time area that's also got a lot of positive buzz. It's probably going to be a box office success as well. They'll put their more focus into that movie than the one that comes out in September slash October that also does not have a lot of buzz, and I don't see this movie breaking out the box office at all. So if you put those two together, I'm going to go with I Want to Dance with Somebody over The Woman King, but... Those are two movies being picked around the same time, but I feel like have very different highs and lows because I think the floor for I Want to Dance with Somebody is the ceiling for The Woman King. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that The Woman King especially is going to be hit with a lot of controversy, uh, especially just... I mean, I saw Bullet Train yesterday, the trailer for Woman King played before, and the big takeaway that I had from that was, oh, wow, it really, really feels like they're glossing over the whole... Um, slave trade aspect of this. Um, and that is going to be a nightmare for that movie uh, if they don't talk about it, because people will talk about it. Uh, and another movie that I want to talk about that I think is being underrated, which we talked about earlier, so I won't go too far into it, is Living. Now, Living went in the 48th pick, the 29th pick, and the 60th pick. And that is shockingly low for a movie that's hitting all of the fall fests except for New York. Uh, because that's it's it's the big fest film of the year, and it's being drafted in the bottom half of the game. So that's one that I feel like might be a great pick for those that picked it last, uh, or you know, middle of the game. I mean, someone even picked that film very last, 60th pick overall, which is crazy because there were some picks just one or two before that were nowhere near as high as a ceiling as Living can have. And you mentioned Living hitting all the fall fest, or at least the big ones. It's another movie that I think I agree is being overrated, but you listed this one as one of your massively overrated movies because it's gone as high as number 11, and for a documentary, that is, at least to me, a little absurd. And you want to get, talk a little bit more about why this film is being overrated? For sure. So All the Beauty and the Bloodshed has been going very, very high up in our draft. Now, here's the thing that I'm going to say. Uh, this movie seems pretty sure to win Best Documentary at the Oscars, but still... Uh, we are playing a game here, and in the game, documentaries have a ceiling. Uh, there is, you know, you cannot break through that ceiling as a documentary because documentaries do not get nominations in above-the-line categories. Uh, they just don't. So picking 
a documentary in 11th place or even in 22nd place, you know, as your second, third round pick is really bold because there's only so far that this movie can go. Now, that said, could All the Beauty and the Bloodshed break history and become the first documentary to be nominated in Best Picture or some of those other above-the-line categories? It could. It totally could. Uh, it's already doing some unprecedented things. It's the first documentary to have the most fall fests, and it's the first document not first documentary, it's a r very rare documentary to be playing in competition at Venice. Says to me, this is something special. But... Uh, I think that people are picking it a little bit too early because they feel like it's a surefire documentary win. And a surefire documentary win does not mean anything in the game. I mean, if you look at it last year, Summer of Soul essentially did the max a doc can do, and that only got 373 points. And that was taken around pick 36. So I think in that area, that's like the sweet spot for those doc contenders, for those anime contenders that seem like surefire things. Because like you said, there's a ceiling. It's about 400 points. I think it was the absolute best you can do. And Summer Soul was just about 20 points away from hitting that ceiling. And that was a, I'm looking at here, was a six-round pick. And like you said, we've had some docs and some anime movies this year go insanely high when their ceiling is nowhere near that. And on the flip side of a doc going super high to an international movie, I think going a little bit low. And funny enough, it's gone the same pick in every draft so far. And that's all quite on the Western front at 42 because this is an international contender that also has a chance for some other categories. While it would be editing or sound or cinematography and maybe even a long shot in supporting actor. Do I think it's going to get all those? No, but it definitely has a chance to get that. And for a film going and looks like the 7th or 8th round in these drafts, I think that's a pretty good pick there. Which could maybe rise up into a 6th round pick or if someone's feeling very confident to it, a very late 5th round. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the flip side, another film that's being overrated, I think, is See How They Run, which is one that has not been on my uh, radar really at all. I mean, it looks like a fun film, uh, Sam Rockwell, Saoirse Ronan, but uh, this film has gone in the second round, in the third round, in a lot of games here. And that's a little concerning to me because this is a Searchlight movie that isn't going to any festivals. Uh, it's being dropped in early September, uh, and that says to me that this is not one that Searchlight is positioning for awards. Could it be a great movie? Yes, but again, we're here for awards, and the max this seems like it's going to get is like a Golden Globe acting nomination uh, for Saoirse Ronan or Sam Rockwell, at the most. So that's one that I think, you know, I would say stay away from. We're seeing people pick it very early in the game, and maybe be a little bit more cautious with this. That will go into one of my strategies that we're doing in this next segment about see how they run. But one thing I want to talk about before we get in there is 13 Lives. This movie just came out. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but it's gone undrafted in two leagues so far. And this is a film that, yeah, you may not like it. And this is another one of my strategies. But you sometimes got to pick those movies that you don't like because they have guaranteed points with them. Yes, they don't have them yet, but there's not. I don't see a world where this movie gets under 150 points. Absolutely, man. <coughs> Absolutely, man. I think that 13 Lives really has been underrated and undervalued in all of these games so far. Uh, because, again, like you said, it's only been picked one time. Now, no matter what you think about this movie, there is a world 
where it gets all those points. Personally, that said, I don't really see it going. I wouldn't draft it, so maybe that's one that uh, a lot of people are feeling the way that I feel about it, which is, you know, I personally wouldn't go for it, but I think that it should be in the game. It should be in play. I agree. Like, I'm not really looking for it myself, but I think as a ninth or a 10th round pick, it's definitely worth one of those, opposed to taking a movie that has, like, an actor or an actress that you really like, that you want to see do something, but at the end of the day has no real shot of really doing it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk strategies. You were saying that you have some strategies here, and you know what? I, I want to hear... You have a background in fantasy sports. Uh, I know that. So I want to hear some of your plans of attacks. How would you go about this? I do have a background in fantasy sports. For those people out there who may not know, I worked with SiriusXM on the Fantasy Sports Station for about a year, my first year out of college last year. So I do have a little bit of experience with this. While film ball is still something a little bit new to me, I'm no champion on like that. But I feel like I know a thing here or there, and the first strategy I have for everyone out there is start with a five-round plan of attack. While there's a lot of films out there, it's really good to have a draft board. You want to have a, a like a sense for those movies that you're going to target. So one thing I've done in the years past, and I'm doing again this year, is I'm building about six to ten films and little groups. So group A, group B, group C, group D. And those are the movies I'm looking for in my first round pick, my second round pick. And then once they run out, then I move down to the next group. That way I'm not looking at 60, 80 films at one time. I'm looking at 10 films. And once all 10 of those are gone, I'm like, cool. Next group, let's see what we have. Because my biggest thing is you kind of can figure out how your first round is going to go. I would say there's about seven, eight, maybe nine movies that are worth a first round pick with, I think, a very clear top four. So if you have a top four pick, especially me this year, I have pick number four. To me, I don't really have a choice. There's four, there's going to be three films picked before me, and which one is left, I'm getting. And one thing I think is really important, but you don't want to do too much, is you want to look at these other draft boards out there. While you don't want to follow them to a T, you can get a very good sense if a film like Bardo is a first-round pick or a film like Living is going very late. You can see like, oh, a lot of people are picking this in the ninth, 10th round. I think this is a six-round pick, so I'm going to put it higher in my groups. Going on to strategy number two is go on gut. If something doesn't feel right, pass on it. This is something I failed to do myself. I've gone on movies I want to see succeed. Like last year, I picked Nightmare Alley. Pick number two, I passed on Dune which I had a gut feeling would be something, but I saw a lot of people putting this film down. I passed on West Side Story, a film I thought could win Best Picture last August, but a lot of people were saying, this film has no shot, Spielberg's going to miss here, this will be the time he misses this film, has a lot of controversy with it, avoid it. I was someone who was really high on it. If I would have picked maybe four or five, I would have had it, but I picked two, and I thought that was too high of a pick for it. Moving into... Strategy number three is don't let personal bias tank your draft, especially early on, because I've seen in some drafts, those first-round picks have been films they love, not films that they think necessarily are going to be Oscar players. I love Elvis. I wouldn't touch this movie in the first two rounds. Same thing goes for Jordan Peele's Nope. I love that movie. It's one of my top five of the year, but in a first round, it's something I'm very much not looking forward to because, I mean, just to speak of my love for Nope, they're doing a Jordan Peele haunted house in the Hollywood location for Universal. I wasn't going to Orlando, but now I'm considering going to Hollywood, which is like triple the price just to see Jordan Peele stuff. But in this game, he is not really someone you want to look at. Even the year Get Out came at, a lot of people probably shouldn't have been looking at that movie first round. Did it turn out well? Yes, but that was a very big swing if you did take that round one. 
but you got a high reward. Nope, it's not going to give you that same thing. And the second little tidbit about this personal bias taking their draft is if you love a specific actor or actress, do not overpick it. This goes back to the see how they run comment earlier. A lot of people love Sasha Ronan, but picking her in the second or third round when there's a lot of other stuff out there, that's not something you really want to do. Get that movie in the 10th round. Sure, take those points. Around 100, that can work out. But picking that Absolutely. second, third, that's nowhere that you want to look at it. You want yeah, to pick last year, that- last year, someone picked Last Night in Soho. Draft one, first pick. Uh, last Night in Soho purely because they loved Thomas and Mackenzie so much uh, and wanted to see them succeed. Do not make that mistake. Do not uh, simp your way into... Uh, a bad first round pick. Exactly. And I mean, going on people in our league, I know that I've done this sometimes. And looking at people joining our league this year, Brother Bro was very high on last night in Soho last year. And that was one prediction that if he was in the league last year, may not have turned out for him. So there's always ways to look back to previous drafts or previous predictions that you've done, see where some of your flaws are, and try to expand from that. Because you should not pick on what you want to succeed, you should pick on based on what you think will succeed and what should succeed. Then number three is get at least one major international documentary animated player in the four to six round mark. This is the like the sweet spot for those contenders. Like we said, there are a ceiling of around 400 points. But if you get those in like round four, round five, round six, those can be very big rewarders at the end of the day. Like Summer of Soul last year. Like a movie like Flea could have been last year if I didn't overpick it because I took Flea in the third round. And then... This year, we got movies like Decision to Leave, Fire Love, Pinocchio, which some people may try to reach and take in rounds three, round two, early round four. I would try to avoid those late four, five, early six. Those are the sweet spots for movies like these because those top three would probably go, but finding your number two contenders, whether that's a strange world or whether that is um, one of the various international uh, people that we've talked about so far, there's a lot of good contenders out there. It's just finding which one speaks to you the most. And number four is know why you're taking a player or a team or a film because you may want to take, like if you look at last year, Will Smith, you may want to get Will Smith on your team so you try to take King Richard, but know why you're taking it. Know the story that's behind it. It sounds simple, but if you could have heard of a movie that you're taking, you want to make sure you have one of those in each round. You don't want to take a movie just because you want a movie. You want to get it because you know why you're taking it. Each film on your team should have a game plan, should have a reason why it's there. You're not just taking the movie just to fill out your roster. You should have it because it has a clear path for this category or it has a clear path for this award show. Because like, if you're taking an animated film, I love the minions. I'm not touching Rise of Guru. But I would touch a movie like Strange World because that has any chances. That has Golden Globes chances. That has a path to the Oscars. And you don't want to take a movie just because of its distributor. I know a lot of people out there would love to have A24 movies on their team, but taking some of those movies, there's no shot at all because we've talked about it on the show before. A24 is a very shaky distributor. They have like one or two movies, they put everything in and everyone else does not matter. Look at 2019, they had The Farewell, was putting everything into it, then they switched to Uncut Gems at the last moment. But they had movies like Waves that easily could have gotten a lot of nominations, but they just ignored across the board. And my fifth and final strategy hack for all of you out there is do not be a slave to the rankings you can look at other draft boards and get a good sense of where stuff may be going but at the end of the day you don't have to follow other people's bias other people's strategies other people's rankings because everyone is different you want to use a board to get a a feel for where films are going using the example of living earlier 10th round pick ninth round pick got in my head i know i want this in the sixth or i want this in the seventh or even as high as the fifth so if you make those groups for your team 
you can put that in group five, in group six. And that way when you get down on the board, you're like, oh, I had this movie at five and we're in like the seventh round. I should take this now because other people are going to start looking at it here soon. And the last thing I want to mention is if you ever played fantasy football before, you know how quickly certain players can just fly off the board. A bunch of quarterbacks will all fly off at one time. Tight ends, running backs, receivers. But you don't want to go too far because especially for those animated documentary international features, I feel like when one goes, other people are going to be like, oh, I should get one too. This is when they're all starting to go. But as we mentioned, each category has like one or two movies that seem very high if there's a massive fall off on the rankings. So know what your cutoff is. If it's animation, Pinocchio is gone. Strange World has gone. Is this my time to jump out or do I want to take something like Marcel? Do I want something like Turning Red? When is my cutoff and when do I have to wait to return to this category in a few more rounds? And Because you don't want to reach on something. Like let's say we're in round four. Pinocchio is gone. Next pick is Turning Red. The following pick is Strange World. You're up. You're like, I need an animated movie. I don't have one. But you're looking at your board and the bad guys is your next one up. The bad guys is not worth a fourth round pick. This is when you need to jump off the ship and come back in round seven, round eight, and be like, okay, now it's my time to get that little animated four or five slot movie that I think has a shot. Because like last year, I got Ray and the Last Dragon in the ninth round. There was a time earlier where an Encanto went, and two more animated movies went like right after it. And I'm like, no, this is my cutoff. I need to wait. I'll come back to this category when I feel comfortable taking a movie. And Ray and the Last Dragon turned out to be a very good ninth round pick last year. So the last thing I just want to say before I hand it back over to Matt is just know when your cutoffs are for those certain categories because once the top two or three contenders go, there's not a good movie left to take. You don't want to overpick something just to fit in. All very, very good points. And to that point, I would also say uh, make sure your team has some diversity to it just in the types of movies that you're picking. Uh, Because something that I see in a lot of teams is people going for a lot of the same type of movie. Uh, You mentioned A24. I've seen teams in the past where people have drafted like four or five A24 movies because they really like A24. Uh, One team that just drafted, uh, I think all of these movies have great chances, but what are the chances of all three movies getting through? In the first three rounds, this person had drafted... um, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, then Top Gun Maverick, then Avatar The Way of Water. And going for all three of those movies, while that's very cool, you have all the big blockbusters of the year, it also doesn't leave for a lot of room for other films. And so, you know, is the Academy going to nominate one of those movies, two of those movies? Totally. All three of those movies, though, is a bit of a long shot. So make sure that you are really giving yourself uh, a lot of room for different types of films. But here's the other thing. Unlike with fantasy sports, you don't have to fill out different positions, right? You are not looking for your quarterback. You're not looking for your uh, linebacker or I don't know anything about football. This is why I like movies. I'm just, I, football terms. You're not looking for your different positions. Um, You can do that or you can build a different strategy, but you're not looking for one film that's going to be in this category, one film that's gonna be in this category. It's all a strategy, right? You can go for a bunch of the same, or you can go for a bunch of different ones. But, you know, there's there's no, no rules. Do whatever you want. Uh, I would definitely just recommend look for some diversity in categories. Now, uh, we want to do something a little bit special, which is looking back one year. Uh, because the reason that we do our film ball draft in August is because it spices up the game a little bit. 
you know, we're late enough in the year that we know the films that are going to the festivals. We know what's coming out this year. We know what's not coming out this year. But what we don't know is uh, what's good and what's bad, which is why it's interesting here. In a couple of weeks after Venice, we're going to know don't worry, darling has flopped. We're going to know uh, Till might be underperforming. We're going to know that some films that no one ever expected are fantastic. Uh, so the reason we do our draft right now is because these are all still unknowns. We know what's coming, but we don't know if it's good. Uh, but we do know some things. And we're going to see at the very end of the season some of the things that we think right now are going to pan out. Uh, so we want to look back at last year and last year's draft and see some of our big guesses that um, really panned out and some of the ones that maybe didn't. Uh, and I think that the the big one that everyone kind of knew last year from this point uh, on our draft all the way to the end was Dune. Everyone knew Dune was going to sweep the text. And what did Dune do? It swept the text. 100%. And on those same lines, last year, a lot of people were very confident in Will Smith. He had the narrative, he had the film, he had the release date, he had the studio backing him. It looked like there would be no roadblocks. He could just coast his way to the ceremony. And what did he do? He sweeped almost. He won almost every big prize all the way to the Oscars and won his award. Jane Campion did the same thing. And if you go to some of the tech categories, like Dune won all those, you got Cruella in costumes. This is a movie that's very much not an Oscar movie, but had one sort of thing, and it dominated in that field. It won almost every costume award all season long, and No Time to Die did the same thing with Song, which there was a little time when people thought Encanto could overtake it, but at the end of the day, No Time to Die did win the most Song wins during the award season race. Yeah, and on the Best Picture category... We kind of knew Power of the Dog was going to be out front at this point. Obviously, Power of the Dog did not win in the end, but I just looked back at our top 10 picks in the draft last year, and of our first 10 picks, 6 out of 10 of those picks, those were the Best Picture nominees. Um, the ones that we missed, which did not uh, get picked in the first 10, which were Best Picture nominees, we picked King Richard at number 11. Belfast at number 17, Coda at number 21, and Drive My Car was all the way down at 57 last year. So, uh, all to say, though, that's the first three rounds for everything except Drive My Car. But it's still interesting because th right now, uh, the films that are being drafted in the first 20 picks, it's very likely that those are our best picture contenders. We know that at this point, you know, we're far out from the Oscars, but we know some things. Like last year, we knew Cruella was going to be a costume player. We knew Summer of Soul was going to run away with documentary. Um, we were questioning J Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye because it has September release. But, you know, I think enough people thought she can do it, and she did it. Uh, but of course, there's some picks that we picked very early that did not pan out, and there's going to be that this year, too. Stuff like House of Gucci, like The Humans, The Last Duel, uh, A Hero, with The French Dispatch. Those are movies that we thought were going to be massive, which did not pan out the way that we uh, hoped they would or expected that they would. 100%, because I know me personally last year, I... Been into some of the hype. I heard everyone hyping up Flea, and I took Flea before Summer of Soul and like a round or two before Summer of Soul. So that was a very 
major leap for me that did not pan out at all. And then you look at some other movies on my list, well, they were they actually did submit where I took them. Parallel Mothers and The Eyes of Tammy Faye were two fourth and fifth round picks that ended up actually doing what I thought they would do because there's a lot of variance you can have in your draft. Like Matt said, getting a wide array of films does help because if you look at Matt's team last year and he ended up winning the league, he had a tech player. He had a good best picture and screenplay candidate with Belfast. He had an animated film with the Mitchells versus the Machines and then he had specific tech categories for players for there like Cruella and Costumes, The Harder They Fall for Ensemble and No Time to Die for sound and editing. So he had a nice, well-rounded team at the end of the day, came out on top. Yeah, I, I'll just go over my team really quickly, say what worked out, what didn't work out. I picked Dune first round uh, last year, which worked out incredibly well for me. But then I picked The Humans in the second round. I fell victim to the hype around A24 and hearing that this was a Pulitzer movie and you know this was uh, going to be big. Totally messed that one up really bad. But then I redeemed myself. Third round, I got Belfast. Uh, After that, I took No Time to Die, Red Rocket. And then, you know, now that I'm at the sixth round, I started thinking a little strategically about some tech categories. So in the sixth round, I picked up Cruella. Uh, In the seventh round, I picked up The Mitchells versus The Machines, not only because I thought that would be an animated contender, but because I adored that movie. And it was something that I had faith in because I loved. Uh, Then after that, I picked... One of the biggest flops of the year, Dear Evan Hansen was my seventh round pick. Um, That was a big swing and a miss, uh, but again, at least I picked it in the eighth round. At number nine, I picked Shiva Baby because I wanted to get something a little bit more indie, a little bit uh, different. That one only got 109 points. It didn't perform as well as I could have hoped it would. Um, I was really banking on some Indie Spirits Awards that it did not get, which lesson learned for this year is the Indie Spirits Awards do random bullshit. Uh, They're all over the place. So I'm not going to go for Indie Spirits again this year. But my final pick that I got there was The Harder They Fall, which did perform very well. And I've spoken about that before, that my strategy for number 10 is usually to go for something that I think people are underrating a little bit. Dill, let's go through your team. Uh, Let's see what worked out for you, what didn't work out, um, and what was your thinking behind those picks? Cool. So my team was a little over the place this year, was not as consistent as my 2020 COVID team was. But this team, we started off with Nightmare Alley, number two overall. Did it end up working at the end of the day? Sure, it got in for best picture, but it only got 583 points. And we look at the pick right after it, which was Dune, which got about a thousand more points. So thinking, going like what I said with the strategies, going with your gut is better than using your brain sometimes. Number two, Second round, I picked Flea. This was one I was really banking on a doc and an animated tandem with winning both of those categories and having a shot for picture because I felt like this was a still a COVID year. Some weird things could happen. Big swing, big miss, sort of. It got about the same amount of points as Summer of Soul, but like I said, this was a second round pick. Summer of Soul was a fifth, sixth round pick. Number three was my biggest swing and miss of the year was Mass. I remember even having a conversation with Tandem because I felt like these two movies were the same, Mass and Coda. One was going to do well, one was going to flop. One won Best Picture, which went about three picks after me. One was Mass, and that was the one on my team. But I redeemed myself with my next two round picks. These were ones I was looking for specific categories. So I saw Parallel Mothers, Actress at this time. Spain had not picked their submission, so I thought Actress International and maybe a tech. And at the end of the day, it got Actress and it got Score. The pick right after that was The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Same thing, Actress 
makeup costumes. It got two of those. It won two of those. So those two picks ended up working at the end of the day. After that was passing at this time, a lot of people were very high on this movie. This was when I was really surprised fell to me this late. But at the end of the day, it was still a pretty good pick. It got just under 300 points, but I thought it would do a little bit better than it did. After that, I swung a little bit in the seventh round with a net. It got about 130. I thought this would be a little bit bigger of a player, especially for the Globes and with Adam Driver. But last year was not Adam Driver's year. This and The Last Duel both were very not well performers in the game of film ball. The eighth round is when I got Ray and the Last Dragon animated movie. I felt like this was a solid five all year long. No chance to win, but I felt like he was going to get in. As we talked about before, they love Disney. This was Disney's bigger movie at the first half of the year before Encanto came out. So this felt like a pretty good pick here and it ended up turning out pretty well. My last two rounds were not as good for me. I picked Bruised, which was the Halle Berry movie last year. I felt like there was a shot for her maybe in something because she was directing as well. So I felt like maybe there was some sort of campaign there, but nothing came out of that. And my last pick was one that didn't even come out last year, Official Competition, which could be a pick this year. I don't think anyone should really take it, but it's out there. And then my waiver picks, none of them were really amazing. For the grand scheme, they were good waiver picks, but not in the overall game. We had the Souvenir Part 2, Swan Song, Zola, which got over 200 points. Happening, which is available to pick this year. I know some people have, and that's an automatic 170 points already on your team. And my last waiver pick of the year was Test Pattern. Last year, I did not have a lot of movies on my team I was huge fans of, which is something I hope to kind of course correct this year. But I felt like my team was decent, but clearly nowhere near the top. I think I came in fourth last year, um, fourth or fifth. I, there was a there was a large discrepancy between the top four and the bottom three. Now, something that I will say about your team is all of these films did very solidly. You just didn't have any one film that did absolutely amazing. You didn't have a Dune, a Belfast, a Power of the Dog, a Coda. Um, because even Nightmare Alley, which did make it into Best Picture, only got 583 points. Now, in comparison, Power of the Dog got over 2,000 points last year. So, you know, when you look at that discrepancy, that's a pretty wide gap between the two of them. But overall, I mean, I do like your team from last year. But to that point, we're talking strategies today, and you just said something really interesting, which is that you want to course correct and get some films that you like more this year. And I'll say that's actually something that I have been really proud of in the past, uh, which is that I've been picking films that I I love. You know, it's not just films that I am like, oh, this could do well. Obviously, I'm not letting my bias go through. But if I have a choice between a film that I think is going to perform pretty much the same as another film, uh, I'm going to pick the one that I'm more excited about, the one that I love more. That's why I picked Mitchell's versus The Machine's. Uh, because that was a film that I loved. And um, I'm going to do the same thing this year. You know, that's why I'm everything everywhere all at once might not be the sensible first round pick. Uh, it's definitely a first, it should be in the first six or so. But I'm picking that film because it's a film I'm passionate about. And I want that on my team because I know I'll be rooting for it all year long. So that would be my biggest advice to you as you're putting together a team is uh, find the films that you love. I fully agree with that. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of making those tier lists for your uh, pre-draft boards, getting groups of 10. That way you're not looking at, oh, I love this movie, but it's not, shouldn't be in your 
tier one or tier two. Find that movie that you love the most in your tier one, in your tier two, like you're doing with everything everywhere all at once. And that I hope to do in the second or third round of our draft is taking a movie I love a lot that maybe shouldn't be that pick, but I feel like it has the passion and has the angle to have that course to get to the Oscars and get those nominations. Absolutely. Now, we're coming in really fast to our draft this week, but before that, we are going to do our predictions, which we do every week, and this week, I'm going to start off, I'm going to talk about documentary feature, uh, because this is one I see a lot of people all the time be like, I have no idea how to predict documentary, because, like, I don't know the films yet. I get it. But that said, at this point in the year, I actually think documentary is the easiest category to predict, because all of these films have come out. You just have to know how to look for the reviews, and you have to ha know where to look to find the films. But at this point, there's really not going to be a lot of surprises from here. Uh, we know the documentary contenders. A lot of them are going to be Sundance films. Uh, in fact, four out of my top five are Sundance films, so let's go through it. Uh, at number five, I've got The Territory. Uh, now, I haven't seen The Territory yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. This is a National Geographic film uh, set in Brazil, and it follows the plight of uh, an indigenous community fighting against uh, deforestation of the Amazon. Uh, I've heard amazing things about this. Uh, that said, National Geographic has their hands full because they also have Fire of Love, uh, which is also in my top five, but I'll talk about that in a second. At number four, I've got All That Breathes. Now, All That Breathes is an Indian film. Uh, it is following um, a group of activists that take care of predatory birds uh, in Delhi. Now, this is a film that I think India could submit as their international feature pick, and it could get nominated in that. This could be Honeyland, uh, where it gets international feature and documentary feature. We've seen that for the past three years now. Honeyland, Collective, Flea. Um, and this year, it could be All That Breathes. Now, number three, I've got Fire of Love. This is going to be a lot of people's number one picks. Um, but that said... There's a few things riding against this, which is it has two distributors, National Geographic and Neon. And Neon just picked up another very big documentary contender, which might mean that they prioritize Fire of Love a little bit less. Uh, also, this movie is all archive footage, and archive footage uh, is not often the Academy's favorite. Um, in the past, they've snubbed films like Jane uh, and like, um, what am I trying, oh, Apollo, uh, Apollo 11. Those were films that heavily relied on archive footage and got left out. Uh, so could that happen to Fire of Love? Totally. This could be the big contender that is uh, goes the way of Apollo 11 or The Rescue uh, or, you know, those big other contenders that have dropped off in the past. Number two, I have Descendant. This is Netflix's big documentary of the year. Now, I thought this was going to show up at TIFF. It did not show up at TIFF, uh, which is a little surprising to me, but this won the top documentary prize at Sun... Oh, sorry, it did not win the top documentary prize, but it was highly praised at Sundance this year. Um, and it is produced by Higher Ground, which is the Obama's company. And it, this feels like American Factory to me all over again. So this could really make it. But number one, it's got to be All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Neon just picked this film up, so they're going to be pushing this hard. It's in Venice. It's in TIFF. It's in Telluride. It's the centerpiece of the goddamn New York Film Festival. This is a big deal. Uh, and this film follows a, uh, a battle between an activist and Purdue Pharma uh, to expose the pharmaceutical industry of getting people addicted to OxyContin. Um, this is going to be a fantastic film. And it's directed by Laura Poitras, who did Citizen Four, the Edward Snowden documentary. Um, 
So right now, I feel very solid about this top five, but right on the edge, I'm, I'm teetering between Moon Age Daydream and the territory. I've got my Bowie shirt on right now, and uh, Moon Age Daydream could totally make it into that top five as that kind of experimental out there documentary about a singer that people know and love. Um, yeah, so that's that's really where I'm at, but you know, I've got a few teetering as well. Navalny, Aftershock, A House Made of Splinters, all of those could happen, but you know, I feel most confident right now in the top six. I mean, just looking at your ranking here for documentary feature, this looks like a very strong year for a documentary because I could see like a film like Navalny that's at your number eight easily be a number two or number three in another year. Just this year, there's so many contenders. And while I think Navalny is going to get in at the end of the day because I feel like there's the passion for it, I feel like it's a number five contender though. Like you said, it's not, it's not in the winning conversation. I think all the beauty and the bloodshed, unless something happens should be this year's Summer of Soul, where it just coasts, beginning to end, wins everything. It may like lose one here or there, but it's not going to drop any lower. While like, Fire Love has the stuff against it, where I feel like it easily could be like the Mr. Rogers, where it's, or a beautiful, or, yeah, where it seems like, yes, this should be in, but at the end of the day, it just misses. There's no real reason. It's just out. And I feel like because we have so many contenders this year, I feel like a movie like Fire Love just misses because, like you said, the territories are right there. The Neon's also doing all the beauty and the bloodshed. No one's focusing on it. So it misses. And that's where Navalny can come in. Or that's where Moon Age Daydream, because I feel like those two films will have a lot more passion than a film like Fire Love will have. Even though Fire Love, like we both said on a previous episode, is so, so good. Yeah. Now, the thing about Navalny is I think it peaked way too early. That movie came out in March. Uh, people were talking about it a lot then. Uh, but I think that this is a movie that, uh, unless something huge happens in Russia right around Oscar voting, it's going to be forgotten about. Uh, that was a movie that really fit the zeitgeist right when it released. But uh, sadly, people aren't talking about that situation as much right now. So... Um, it's at a bit of a disadvantage. The documentary category is heavily, heavily influenced on narrative. I mean, something that I always bring up is one of the most disappointing Oscar wins of all time for me is in 2017, in the documentary category, uh, the Netflix film Icarus won the award over Faces Places, which was the uh, second last film of one of my favorite directors of all time, Agnes Varda. Um, and that was a movie that was so beautiful, but it just so happened that Icarus was a movie about Russian doping in the Olympics. And what happened during Oscar voting, literally two weeks before the Oscars, the Olympics were happening. So that was a movie that was in people's minds because the Olympics was happening. It was being talked about. And ultimately the weaker film won because of a narrative. Uh, and that's, that's what happens. The zeitgeist can change on a dime and suddenly a film that no one was talking about could just pop right up into the first place in the documentary category. Well, speaking of narratives, that brings us to our second category of the day for predictions, and that will be with me with Best Actress, and I can see this race going in a lot of ways because there's a lot of narratives, just like there is every year in the acting categories. So I'm going to start off with my five and four before I get into those three that I think have a very solid chance to win. Number five is Kate Blanchett for Tar. I'm not as high on this movie as a lot of people are, but I feel like she's pretty safe unless this movie is just ignored across the board. Number four is Olivia Coleman for Empire of Light. Like I talked about earlier, this movie keeps rising. Well, I don't know if it's going to win anything for me at the end of the day for my predictions. It's one that I feel like will be there across the board. Sam Mendes has that built up good faith. This movie seems like it's going to be good. Tiff is giving it the directing prize. There has to be something here. 
So Olivia Coleman comes along for the ride. That brings us to the top three. Number three is Margot Robbie for Babylon. I feel like she easily could walk away with this win. A Babylon is that best picture contender a lot of people think it is. I think she just has not the best narrative this year because of Amsterdam that will be coming out. And I feel like that is something where Amsterdam is in the news. That hurts everyone involved, including Margot Robbie, including Christian Bale, including anyone that cast that is trying to do anything this Oscar season. And I feel like she's very solid for a nomination, but for a win, I'm losing faith the more time that goes on, unless this movie comes out and she's unstoppable. That brings us to my top two, and my top two all depends on one thing. Is everything everywhere all at once winning Best Picture? If it is, Michelle Yeoh is winning Actress. Is I want to dance with somebody in Best Picture? If so, Naomi wins Best Actress. And even if it misses Best Picture, or Best Picture, if I want to dance with somebody gets those texts, gets costumes, gets makeup, gets a screenplay, she wins. Michelle Yeoh, I think, needs Best Picture. I don't think Naomi needs it. I think I, I completely agree with you here. Uh, your top five is pretty much exactly the same as mine. Um, I do have Naomi Aki lower because I think that uh, personally, I do think it's going to come down to the narrative between it's Margot Robbie's time or it's Michelle Yeoh's time, um, which means that Naomi Aki, you know, I think that she might have like a it's her time narrative come along a little bit later. Uh, unless she's just absolutely undeniably spectacular as Whitney Houston in this movie. Um, but your top five, again, you have all the same picks as me. Kate Blanchett, Olivia Coleman, Margot Robbie, Michelle Yeoh, Naomi Aki. This is the top five right now. Feels pretty undeniable to me. People might say Viola Davis is in there, Daniel Deadweiler. Their films are not going to be as big as this five. It's pretty undeniable here. I agree, and like last year we were talking about going on gut feelings and going on stuff like that. The feeling I have for Aki this year is how I felt about Chastain last year and how I felt about Cruz last year. I, I felt like they they just had it in them, and at the end of the day, it was Cruz versus Chastain, and Chastain came out on top. But if you look outside of my top five, I have Deadweiler at six. I feel like Actress is kind of weak this year outside of the top five. I really struggled to make a 6 through 10. So I have Deadweiler at 6 because even though that movie's not good, I could see this being a Harriet situation where Deadweiler comes along, maybe it tech does too, but the rest of the movie is ignored. 7, I have whoever is the leader, she said. Right now I have Mulligan. I feel like once I know someone, they go to 6. But at the moment, since I don't know who it is, I have them at 7. Then that comes us to 8, 9, 10. These picks, I don't think, matter. I don't think these people really have a shot at this moment. But I have Jennifer Lawrence for Causeway at 8, just because the best buzz of the next three. Number 9 is Anna Diamish for Blonde. Don't think this has a shot for a nomination, but I feel like she'll be in the conversation all year, just never in that 5, 6, 7 range. Always just like outside shot because there is passion, but no passion for an actual nomination. And number 10, just because I want to give her a shout-out, I have Taylor Russell for Bones and All. Um... Dropping out my list is Florence Pugh for Don't Worry Darling, as we've talked about almost every week on this show. This movie's gone from those people watching the YouTube, and if not, I'll try to describe it for the audio listeners. It was at the top, and we've, this is episode 11, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 we have at the bottom of the screen. And essentially in every category, I think I have Don't Worry Darling outside my top 10. Yeah. No, man, how the mighty have fallen. I was predicting that so hard at the beginning of the year, and I'm not feeling it now. Now, the thing, I mean, I just said this is common, like, it feels like an undeniable top five. This top five could change when we start getting reactions from these films. But right now, 
if you're just thinking of what could be, you're totally right. This category does feel a little bit weak. The top five feels so incredibly strong, though, and that's why the category feels weak, because these top five feel so absolutely undeniable uh, that what else could even sneak in there at this point? There's going to be some things that underperform. There's going to be some things that overperform, uh, some shocks, some surprises. But right now, on paper, this top five just makes sense. It feels a lot like Best Actor last year. Because at this time last year, everyone had Smith, Cumberbatch, Washington, DiCaprio. Just that fifth spot was open. And then once people saw Tick, Tick, Boom, Andrew Garfield came in. And the top five never really changed until ultimately DiCaprio fell out. And Javier Bardem came in, but that happened because Don't Look Up didn't was not really the player everyone thought it was going to be at the beginning of the season. So I feel like that could be the case this year of Aki, Yo, Robbie, Coleman, good all year long. Tar comes out. Tar's not really a movie everyone loves, and that's when someone like Deadweiler or Mulligan or Lawrence or someone that was not even on our radar right now comes out of nowhere like Garfield last year and gets in that top five. Well, that's the thing. Andrew Garfield last year, who would have thought at the beginning of the year that that would be a contender that came in and and just totally upset the race and became win competitive? I think he was uh, second. Yeah, that's that was incredible to me. And so is that going to happen again this year? It could. And I think this is a category that's ripe for that because it seems so absolutely solid right now, which means something big is going to happen here. Um but anyways, we're going to bring it home. I'm going to uh, talk about my best picture list. And before we get to the top 10, I'm going to talk about some things that are rising and falling. Uh, so at my number 43 slot, yeah, I go all the way to 50 with my uh, top uh, <laughs> best picture films. So at my number 43 slot, rising, we have My Policeman from Amazon Studios. Uh, now, the reason why I have My Policeman rising, again, it's still very low, number 43 out of 50. Uh, the reason it's rising is because it won a big award from TIFF. Uh, the film has not screened yet, so we don't know if there are actual reactions that are good, but it won, uh, the Best Ensemble Award there. So, who knows? Maybe that was just a stunt because they like Harry Styles, but maybe it means something, uh, and maybe this film will have a little bit of a uh, boost from Harry Styles giving out some free concert tickets uh, I feel like, in gift I feel like packages. that's only right. You gotta invite the Academy members to your tour, give them the give them the, the pit tickets, let them enjoy the show, and yeah, will that happen? No, but that would be a really cool story for like a, a movie of like singers on tour, invites Academy members out. That That's, oh that's a God. good story right there. That feels like something Lady Gaga would do. Please give me an award. Please give me an award. Joker um, time? Anyways, yeah, so that's at my number 43. Again, it's rising, but it's still very low. Now, another film that I think is rising is at number 30. I've moved up the Batman way up my list. It was in the 40s last time. Uh, and right now it's at number 30. Reason for that, Warner Brothers is going fucking crazy right now. I don't know what they're doing. They are tanking everything. And I think at the end of the year, they're going to look at their totally shit show year and be like, well, the Batman was good. Um, so maybe they're going to push that a little bit harder. Uh, so I do have that at my number 30 slot rising up. Another one that's rising up all the beauty and the bloodshed. I've got that at number 28. Could this be the first documentary nominated? Probably not, but, uh, this needs to be on the list. It's getting all of those 
nominations, uh, not nominations, all of those festival placements all across the board. So I need to have this in my best picture list. Number 28, Rising Up from Nothing. Number 23, Rising. Again, a lot of films rising this week. Living. Living was a film that last week I had in the 40s, but now it's playing all the fests. It's got a great release date. It's got a great trailer. This is a film they're going to be pushing. Bill Nye is going to get into Best Actor. This, number 23 for Best Picture right now. Then one that I feel is falling. Uh, we've got the greatest beer run ever. After the trailer, I really feel like this dropped down a little bit for me. It felt a little bit like um, the Academy likes seeing new stuff. They like being presented with things that they have not seen before. Uh, and this felt like Green Book too. Uh, and to me, could that be a mark that the Academy will go for it again? Maybe, but I'm more inclined to think they're not going to fall for the same trick twice. That's not what the Academy does. So I see the greatest beer run ever dropping down. So I've dropped it down to number 18. Also dropping, I've got Triangle of Sadness, which dropped down from number 10 for me down to number 13. Uh, and I said my reasoning earlier, this is a weird film. I don't really see a path for the Oscars, but it's still a great film and it's going to have some passionate supporters. Uh, then we're going to get into my real rankings right here. Uh, quickly, number 12, I've got Avatar The Way of Water. Number 11, Tar. Those are the ones that I think are right on the periphery. Number 10, moving way up, way up. I already said my reasoning here. I want to dance with somebody. Number 10 from Sony Pictures. Now, this is one that I think people are massively underrating, and I think this is going to come in just like King Richard did last year, uh, and it's going to be the film uh, that really focuses on joy and triumph, uh, and it's going to have a great performance in the center of it. At number nine, I've still got Top Gun Maverick. It's just floating right by. It's coasting. You know, it's uh, it's not going up or down right now. Number eight, got The Sun. Number seven, got Empire of Light. Feeling the same about those two. They're just kind of sitting there. They're doing their thing. We're going to see them premiere in the next couple of weeks. So we will know a little bit more about those very, very soon. Now, Empire of Light, I do think, has a very slight chance of being replaced by the Banshees of Inisherin as we see the Searchlight films kind of premiere and uh, see what their stuff is. Then, top six. At number six, I've got Bardo, Netflix's number one priority right here. Uh, I still think that Inyara 2 might be hit with some controversy, but the film looks great. At number five, coming all the way back up from last week, uh, when it dipped because it wasn't hitting any festivals, we got She Said back in the top five. Uh, I still think that this especially now that it's playing New York. This is a festival film. It's a contender. It's a film that's going to make people feel something and make people get angry. Number four, I've got Women Talking. Uh, ultimately, I actually think this maybe should be my number three slot or number two slot, especially after reading the book. I can see a world where this wins Best Picture, but for now, I want some reactions. I want to see this premiere. Number three, I've got Babylon. Uh, I'm just excited for Babylon. It's uh, gonna be a huge tech player. Maybe the it might be the Irishman of this year, where it gets a lot of nominations and not a lot of wins, but uh, this one is undeniably safe. The Fablemans at number two. Um, I think Spielberg is winning director. I don't think there's a chance in hell for the Fablemans to win Best Picture, but Spielberg has a perfect narrative for Best Director right now, which is the dude hasn't won an Oscar since 1998, when he won Best Director for Saving Private Ryan. He is overdue for another Oscar. It's been over 20 years. Um, and what better chance to award someone and their entire body of work 
than by awarding a film that is about their childhood and about them discovering movies. Spielberg, he is, he's Campion this year. He is Jane Campion. Uh, and at number one, I've still got everything ever all at once. It's happening. Get on the train before it leaves the station. Everything ever all at once is still going to win Best Picture. And if it doesn't, it's women talking. Or who knows? Maybe I want to dance with somebody. But I feel like it's one of those three. I'm going to stick with that. Well, I'm glad that you're sticking with it. That makes this more interesting. Um, but I have a few... The, the few things that stood up to me while you were talking with that is you said Babylon could be Irishman. Irishman didn't win any. I feel like Babylon's more of a mink because I feel like Babylon's going to win something, but I also feel like Babylon's going to miss something. I feel like Babylon could miss director. It could miss a screenplay, like making it up missing. I don't know what it is right now, but Babylon just screams to me the top nominated movie, but it misses something big, like like a Dune, even like a Dune, where Dune missed out on a director. I don't know what it is. Could it be director? Maybe this is a tough director lineup right now, but I just feel like Babylon's one of those movies that just makes sense to get everything, but just misses something big. Which but just it's, has it's a lot one of those movie movies clueless. where... It's one of those movies where people are going to uh, predict it and predict it and predict it and predict it, and people are going to go, stop fucking talking about this movie. Jesus Christ. And then it's going to it's gonna miss somewhere because people are going to be so sick of it. Um, and, you know, again, that's something that I think uh, The Fablemans is going to be hit by, too. That was my argument against um, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, is that people were going to be so sick of people saying... This is the front runner. This is the front runner. It's Scorsese. It's Scorsese. I think this uh, this will hurt Bardo too. An Empire of Light. People are just going to be so sick of people talking about it, um, and that is an avenue for women talking or everything ever all at once to sweep in uh, at the last minute. I also think, at least for film ball, she said is a very interesting movie because just looking at draft so far, it's gone high. It's gone low. There hasn't really been a consensus with where this movie should go. And I feel like our league, I could see this being a second round pick. I could see this being, I could, I could see this being an early second or a very late third. And that's like a 12 pick variance. And I just don't know where to really gauge this movie because yes, this movie could be a picture, director, actor, supporting actor, screenplay, bunch of text, or this movie could be bombshell. One actress, a screenplay, and that's it. And I just don't really know how to feel about this right now. That's why I have it at that 10-11 range right now. I would love to get some reactions out of this because the trailer really didn't help me in either direction. And speaking of that, about getting reactions, we have reactions from the Batman. And like you said, Warner Brothers seems interesting. That has me confused with Elvis. But I could see at the end of the day, the Batman getting an Interstellar-style push where it's not a picture or director player, but it's a tech player. And it's every tech player. And it seems like, in like retrospect, like when you look years back, like how did this miss picture sort of thing? Like how people look back at Interstellar, like you got all these texts. How did you miss picture? When in reality, it was never a picture player. And that's just what the feeling I'm getting out of the Batman right now. Clearly, this is August. That stuff doesn't happen until January or February. But I can easily see the Batman end of the day with like four nominations, five nominations, but none of them really being the big one. So at the end of the day, it was never even close to picture. Like you have it at 30 but it's top five in sound, editing, cinematography, costumes, production, stuff like that. Totally. I mean, honestly, I would love to see the Batman get in. I know it's your favorite movie of the year, so uh, I think we both feel the same. I'd love to see it get some love. And I do think that uh, Warner Brothers just flailing their arms and being like, well, what the fuck are we doing? Could help it in the end, because 
they know that people like that movie. And I could even see a world where they totally, totally fuck up the Elvis campaign uh, and put all their chips on the Batman because they so desperately, so desperately want their superhero movies to be big and to be taken seriously. So who knows? Maybe Zaslav uh, is like, Elvis, who cares? Robert Pattinson's Batman is where we're putting all our money this year. Yeah, that's 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 what's making this draft really scared for me because Elvis is one of those that's in my top two, three groups of my little board. But with all this Warner Brothers stuff, I'm like, I'm just getting signs that I should just hard avoid this movie. But it's one of those where you really like. So like, this goes back to our strategies earlier. Sometimes you gotta listen to like what's smarter, not what feels like what you're like what your heart desires type of thing. Right, right. Now, anyways, we are uh, gonna be having our draft come out next week so make sure you tune into that it's gonna be a little bit of a longer episode than normal because again we got six of us next week um and like i said earlier we have some big very exciting guests who are going to be on the show uh chatting with us and picking some movies so we really hope you join us and uh it's gonna be a very fun episode 100 percent. i can't wait i know it's really exciting. I got the fourth pick. I got some strategizing to do. I think I know what I'm going to end up with round one, but I would love if someone else messes up and I could get one of those other movies instead. Yeah, hilariously, the film drunk and brother bro are round fi- uh, five and six, which is too bad for them. Hey, um, come back next year. You can get you can get a higher pick exactly. Well. Exactly. It's just an incentive for them to come back again. <laughs> But yeah, 100%. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Everyone out there, join the Discord. It will be in the comments as usual. Uh, you can follow along. And who knows, maybe if enough people join, we can add another league in here late. We could. We could. And we will include our uh, our draft sheet in there, uh, in our descriptions, that you can follow along, see what we're doing, uh, see how all the leagues are coming together. Uh, but anyways, we want to thank you for tuning into this episode of Fantasy Film Ball. Uh Make sure you come back next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. But until then, my name's Matt. And I'm Dylan, and thank you for tuning in. And thank you for tuning to this episode of Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at @filmball. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.